Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which people working in entertainment, behind the cameras, kindly share with us their never-before-heard anecdotes and stories. These are voices you don't often hear. I also chat with performers and actors to get a glimpse behind the glamour, the business behind the show. If you enjoy our podcast and like to consider becoming a Patreon member and support the podcast further, please check out the Patreon link below. Also, if you're interested in any of my steampunk murder mystery novels, then please go to steamsmokeandmirrors.com. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Cue the music, Marky. This time on Behind the Scenes, we're chatting with a comedian who has been entertaining audiences for more than 35 years. He cut his comedy teeth working clubs and theatres before becoming one of the principal and most versatile studio warm-up artists working in television light entertainment. From top-rated situation comedies, variety shows and quiz shows, his engaging personality and ability to amuse all manner of audiences ranks him alongside warm-up luminaries Bill Martin, Jeff Stevenson, Felix Bones, Ted Robbins and the legendary Bobby Bragg. For many years, he was an integral member of the teams that put together landmark series such as Today with Desimel and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he's a neighbour of Jasper Carrots. Welcome, Mr Ray Turner. I mean, I'm impressed with that, Colin. I thought you were talking about somebody else then. <laughs> when, I, when I mentioned to many and several people in the run-up to our chat that I was going to be speaking with you on this podcast, to a man, woman and boy and whoever else in between said he is the nicest man in show business. Oh, really? and, and so I, I, um, I, I imagine that's a, that's a heavy burden to carry on those shoulders, Ray Turner being a nice man. Yeah, obviously, it wasn't my agent. <laughs> uh, behind the scenes, straight to yeah. it, behind the scenes, the warm-up performer, the warm-up artist. I think you are the, the unsung heroes of television, in my view, because it's a job that requires enormous skill and discipline. And just let me carry this thought on, because you walk out in front of a studio audience who've just arrived... And they've come to see the star of the show and they get you. <laughs> yes, sadly. So, so how tough is it working that crowd when you first walk on? You know, everybody um, says that, but compared with um, doing Gateshead Central on a Sunday lunchtime <laughs> um or the White House Club in Washington, or Mirtha Labour Club on a Wednesday night. It, it, I found it, you know, it, it, was, it was a lot easier. Let's just say it was a lot easier. Um, so it, it was, I know that they hadn't come to see me, and I quite liked that because the pressure wasn't on me, you know. It, it, so I quite enjoyed it, really. But they, 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 they can be tough sometimes, you know. They can, especially when, like you say, they've been waiting there. They could be out there for hours some days. I mean... Sometimes they get turned away, you know, and they're crying. But um, 
Yeah, the, 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 I, I enjoyed it. It, it. it was easier than doing clubs. Sure. And I, I suppose it's a bit like working the clubs. You know the strength of your material. And you know where your laughs are. But if if the coach uh, got delayed on the A40 or wherever, or, or on the M62, uh, or, or it was wet outside, uh, the, <laughs> the audience comes in in a different mood every time, don't they? Well, they do. I, I remember once doing This Is Your Life, and nobody ever knew who it was. Uh, well, obviously people knew, but I mean, I certainly didn't know who it was. Mm. And um, the audience were outside. This was at Teddington, if I remember right, Teddington Studios. They were outside for hours, you know, waiting to get in. And this, as I went out, you could either be on for five minutes, depending what time they got the, the, the artist to, to the studio. Mm. Um, you could be either on for five minutes or, or, or an hour, two hours. So this woman in the front row kept saying, who is it? I said, I really don't know. She said, it's my first time in a television studio. I said, I really don't know. She kept calling, are they here yet? I said, I don't know. I said, not 30 minutes, an hour's gone now. And all of a sudden the show starts and I saw this woman getting herself ready. And um, he came out, Michael, uh, Michael Aspel was, and he came out and he introduced the, the, the artist and it was a lifeboat man. I didn't know who it was. And this woman just stood up and she said, who the bloody hell's that? She said, I'm going home. And she walked straight across shop and just went. And they had to stop the show. <laughs> it's nothing to do with me, you know, it wasn't my fault. So that's an audience of being, so you, you never, the trouble is because the tickets are free, you yeah. never really know who's going to come in, do you? Sure. But of course, your audience for This Is Your Life will be different to the audience on uh, Today with Desimel, which I want to get to later on. Right. And when you're uh, warming up an entertainment show, a sketch show, Christian, yeah. it's your job to be funny, but not funnier than the show itself. And that might, must not take uh, enormous discipline. Well, sitcoms were, were probably the hardest in that respect because um, they do a scene... And uh, so you go out, you warm the audience up and then they go to the first scene and you have to read the script. So you get there early, you've gone through the script um, in the dress run all afternoon, watching them rehearse. So you know it's going to happen. So you're going to explain to the audience, now we go into the kitchen scene or the bedroom scene. They do it once and they laugh. And they say, okay, we'll do that again. And they laugh again. But then the third time, they don't laugh as much. Mm. So then... The producer will come down uh, or send word down to the floor manager and say, can you get the, can you tell a few gags, get the audience. So you build them up to get, you get them laughing. And, and then the actors sometimes look at you as though, you know, you, you're trying to be funnier than me. Or So it was, that was difficult at times. I mean, and not all of them, but there were one or two over the years looked at me and thought, you know, this, this guy's trying to outdo us. But I, I never did that. You know, I, I just followed orders. And as Des and as Des O'Connor say, uh, get the money and head for the hills. <laughs> he used to say, didn't he? Oh, God bless you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so having said that, you being a versatile performer working with quiz show hosts and comedy stars and actors, uh, who do you rather work with, actors or, or turns? Um, I suppose, do you know, it, it, it didn't... I, I always say this, even when I go on stage now, they say to me, have a good one, I always say, I'll do my best. Mm. I go out there. I may look as though I'm just making it as I go along. A lot of it I do. But, as, you know, it didn't really matter. Um, you know, when we did the Michael Parkinson show, some of the guests he had on, it, it didn't really bother me too much, as long as the audience 
were happy and the host was happy. Uh, so it, it, it didn't really matter too much who it was. Sure. And, and having said that, when you're warming um, a situation comedy up, you've explained your, your role as a narrator. But, but also, yours is a kind of, on a sitcom, I would have thought a conversational style because you're not strutting your stuff out there. Uh, you're engaging the audience in, in basically a conversation as you explain what the heck's going on, the progress of the plot and what the actors are up to. Yeah, yeah, I do. I tried to do that in, in all the years I was doing it. When I was really busy, I, I would make sure that... Um, because I always thought it's, it's the audience, then there's the cameras, and there's, there's the set. And a lot of these people have never been there before, and they wanted to know what does he do, what does what's his job, um, what's he like, the host, what's she like, mm. and so I used to try and talk to them, walk amongst them a lot, not just mm. stand there in front with the mic and treat them like a stand-up gig. I tried to get in amongst them, and that way you'd find characters. And so, you know, you always get the remarks from the crew. Don't you? You've got any new jokes? You know, they're going to be funny this week. <laughs> I always said, my it's not an, it will never be the same because I'll find a different character every night, and, and which you did. You you will, and if you treat them with a bit of respect, you know, and then. A lot of the time, I'd bring the host into it. You know, I'll tell you who was good at that. Obviously, Chris Tarrant was great at that. He'd spent half his night in the audience. Mm -hmm. Philip Schofield was really good, and, and Terry Wogan. They were great coming into it. And these, the audience then would go home happy. They'd love that then. I met them, you know, because they'd only ever seen them on TV before. So yes. I used to try and get them amongst them, you know, and get them involved. If you, if you remind me of an anecdote, I was doing the Tom O'Connor show. I think it was at the Greenwood Theatre. Gosh, in South, South East London. And the warm-up performer was also the associate producer, Peter Fitton. Uh, yeah. No longer with us now. And he was a bald man with a beard. Bald as a, bald as a billiard ball. Uh, but on this particular occasion, he thought it'd be funny just to wear a wig to make the crew laugh. And he performed his entire warm-up evening wearing the wig. And, and because he had, like yourself, an engaging personality, the crowd really liked it. They took to Peter. And then the off-camera camera joke was that Tom would walk by, Tom O'Connor would walk by and whip the wig off to get a big laugh, okay? The bald head would be revealed. There was fit and bald, no wig. Well, the <laughs> audience hated Tom O'Connor for that. <laughs> Thank God it was the end of the show because they really, they were infuriated because <laughs> Peter had engaged them so winningly and they he was their friend. The trouble is now, a lot of those crowd, they'll go home and think, that Tom O'Connor, what an awful person. And as we both know, Tom was the sweetest of men and, oh, and, 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 and even the most skilled company performers can actually judge it wrong sometimes, no matter, despite your years of, of, um, of performance. Yeah. You've got years of performance in your armory do you ever get nervous as you go on now you know everybody asks you that i suppose oh do they said, oh i'm sorry i thought i was being highly original <laughs> <laughs> no, no they do ask you that don't they and they say would you get nervous that and um what's he like or what's she like but yeah if you said no i think you'd be like because everybody does everybody and before i started in this business I worked, everybody says, were you a red coat? And I said, oh, I wasn't a red coat, but I worked at Butlins as a retail catering manager. And I used to watch the late night cabaret. And this is when I got hooked on it. 
And my friend was the entertainment manager, a lovely guy called Rocky Mason, lovely, lovely character. And um, we got Frankie Howard was topping the bill one night and he came out, he said, God, he's just, he's throwing up in the dressing room. He can't, he, he may not be able to go on. And I thought, if ever he gets me that bad, I don't think I'd want to do it, you know, but, but he does some people. But yeah, I, I'm always, you know, I have a look through the curtains, see who's, I mean, Tuesday night when I work, you know, I look through the curtains in the theatre, see who's in, who's in the front row. And yeah, so you do get apprehensive, yeah, I suppose. Mm. You just, you want them to laugh, don't you? I always say that as a comic, uh, if, you're, if you're a singer or a guitarist, you go out, you play a song, sing a song. If nobody claps, you just do another song, don't you? you or you play another. Mm. But with a comic, if you don't get that laugh, you think, oh, crikey, you know, so it's. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, oh, I'll get back on track in a minute, but you mentioned guitar and you use the guitar in your act, don't you? You're one of the, yeah, yeah, I think, right. the few comedy performers now who work that kind of a prop. Yeah, it's more of a prop to me. They used to say, you know, I was in a comedy band years ago and um, when I eventually went solo, they said, you've lost that crutch to lean on, they put it, because you could always turn around and look at the band and... So I just, I, no, I only use it for about 15 minutes in the show, but it's there because you can just strum a chord, think of a gag. And so it gives you that um, bit of time to compose yourself. And also, uh, without going to the extent of Bill Bailey musically for your comedy, uh, it gives you another dimension as well, which sets you apart from other yeah. performers. Well, not after you've seen my guitar play. I mean, <laughs> <you might. laughs> just hang it back spinning your back if i may to warm up it's yeah. an enormous skill because sometimes a recording session uh can take two hours in an evening yeah which means that you really can't black your a material in the first 10 minutes and then you've got nothing to fall back on so you've 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 got to have a a, a legacy and a wealth of stuff to get you through the evening haven't you yeah well that was where getting to know the people and getting in amongst them, finding characters. You, you, because, you know, if I was doing a warm-up one night, then my stand-up show the night up, you could, I, I always found I could never do my stand-up material in a warm-up. My warm-up was use the crowd, a few little routines, get people up, that kind of thing. Um, they, they can be. I remember once we, um, I used to think, a show called the Steve Wright People Show. Mm, I remember it. Yeah, he was great. I loved it. And they had Take That On. And it was the day that Robbie Williams had, had left. So they'd been, we were doing this at Tele Centre and they were recording Top of the Pops up at Elstree. And they and, and apparently the army were outside the BBC. The BBC. They were controlling the crowds. There was thousands of kids there. <laughs> so we'd got a studio full of about 300 kids young kids in there and um, Alistair McMillan was the the director oh, and they said uh, sent word down he said they're going to be late well two hours later hmm. so from if the show hadn't started for two hours and then I mean it wasn't a matter of using material in the end the audience was, but but they were up for it they just waiting for take that to come on so that was one of the longest ones. And Alistair, many years later, she said to me, I would never ever put anybody through that again. I said, Yeah, I know you but yeah we like I say, it's better than doing the work in this club. So. It, it, it goes with the territory, I guess. Yeah. yeah, it does, and, yeah. and pacing yourself and knowing what level to, to pitch it. And I suppose these days, with the 
big arena shows, the talent shows, the singing shows, it requires a different kind of audience warm-up now. It's not something that you do. but Because basically you're getting the audience up to cheer and basically rabble rouse because if the crowd ain't cheering you're not doing your job i guess yeah that's um it's a lot of this i mean the news i i, I did do uh one or two of the um x factor but you know people gone before you you're the floor manager and they just get them you know screaming and shouting so i did it but i'd rather you know i, I felt more comfortable in there telling gags and using the crowd and, and actually listening to them instead of just screaming. Yes, yes. It's a more nuanced performance. The, yeah, that's because I'm old now, I suppose. No, you know, I won't have it said. I won't have it said. Um, you said about, we talked about knowing the script in a sitcom and acting as a narrator. So mm. your job isn't really on a sitcom, standing in front of the crowd and nursing them through the show you've got to do your prep and your homework beforehand to to be a successful um uh, situation comedy warm-up artist haven't you yeah i did that because, um it, you know a lot of my show i wing it even now mm. um i i if i find a character i can get material out of them without offending i, I try my hardest not to i don't go out and be offending people but um I just, um, it, it can be difficult, mm. I suppose. Well, in, in terms of stuff being difficult, just to cut across you, I imagine that when you warmed up my family, you were confronted by a different sitcom audience than when you were warming up something like Black Books yeah, or, or The Kumars. Yeah, The Kumars. Yeah, you, you have to um, read the script. Now, I'm not great at reading script. I'm I speed read, da, 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 da. so mm. I highlight it. But you have to go and, and remembering names, remembering the names of the characters, uh, and then uh, their, their actual names. You give them a name, and then they can. So uh, it was like a challenge to me, and I thought it's not going to beat me this. So I did quite a few sitcoms in the end, and uh, mm. I, I enjoyed it. Although it was it was diff difficult, you know, not difficult. No, it was different. It was different. Mm, yeah, a quiz shows, I imagine, are. Uh enormous fun to do and you've worked with some of the great quiz show front people some of the great game show hosts of our time you um, wogan now you I've, I've, it, my research tells me and i had no memory of this <laughs> at all wogan's perfect recall a oh. memory show i thought which which i'd forgotten about <laughs> which says yeah. something for the show i guess well how is it working with the great man sir terence of wogan do you know what? When people say, who's the nicest person you work with? I have to say, Sir Terry Wogan, because he, he was just the nicest guy you could ever wish to meet. And, and he made me laugh so much. Um, if I can just give you a couple of instances. Mm. He would, um, <clears throat> that perfect recall, I remember that. He was <laughs> okay. interviewing somebody who hadn't been around for, or looking back when they were on 10 years previous. And he had Selena Scott on. So please welcome, we haven't seen her for 10 years, but Selena Scott, she came up, sat down. And it wrote me like, hello, Sir Terry, I suppose you're wondering where I've been. And he went, no. <laughs> it just killed me, you know. And then we did another, I think um, another one. Was it? Was that? Sorry, have I got? Was it here or now? With, with, with Selena Scott, was Perfect Recall the quiz? 
I think perfect. Uh, I was going for perfect recall. The quiz you, you're thinking of is that retrospective that Terry Here did. Now. Having, having interviewed David Icke 15 years earlier, uh, he brought David Icke back to That's continue the, the conversation. And, and, and Terry, in fairness, was was showed some contrition towards David Icke and, and yes. certain things. But but the the yeah, Wogan's perfect recall. Yeah, it's forgotten in the mists of time. Along, along with Monk, Monkhouse's Memory Masters. No one remembers that. Well, I know a story about that, but, but going back to the recall now, because it was here and now where Selena Scott came out, but it's Perfect Recall, which we did at uh, Pinewood. And um, I remember he'd come out and he would, he would stand in, everybody could see him. He did, just didn't care, did he? And I'd say, please welcome Sir Terry Wogan. And he'd come out and this, there's all uh, a lot of elderly people in the audience, because we recorded at 11 o'clock in the morning. And he said, um, this, this, he said, any questions from the audience? And this woman said, um, oh, he's, first of all, he said, well, I'm pleased that you're here now to watch this because um, it means you won't have to watch it again when it goes out because it's crap. So Terry, can you tell me, when will it be on the television? He said, sometime in January, by which time most of you will have passed away. <laughs> and he just, and in between shows, instead of like, you, you finish one show, the host goes off, gets made up. It's like 15, 20 minutes you're filling in for. He'd just walk off to the side, put a different jacket on, come straight out, and he said, let's do the other one so we can all go home. I mean, he was just, just the best. He was just a lovely, lovely a glorious, glorious fellow. Um, uh, doing a show like Deal or No Deal with, no Ed, with Noel Edmonds, uh, the audience is actually in shop for most of most of the show. Yeah. So was that a different kind of crowd uh, to, um, to, to engage with? Yeah, I, I didn't do that many of those. Mm. Uh, I did a few and and it's like a lot of them kind of shows. You get the same, uh, you get the regulars come back every day. Uh, so they seem to know what's going on and they're going to tell you what, what it does now. You know? So it was okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I did Noel's house party, and so that was a different thing altogether with Noel. And that suited me better because it was lively in amongst the audience, and it was live as well. So, but it was okay. It was it was all right. But um, but yeah. I, I thought he was brilliant for, for live presenting. I think he was one of the best presenters I've ever worked. Oh, Noel Edmonds, with it, without doubt, consummate, yeah. absolutely nerveless as well, absolutely yeah, nerveless. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's move on to. Stick with quizzes, sort of move on to the ultimate quiz stroke game show ever created. Who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah. And you were the warm-up performer from the very start. Yeah, I was, yeah. It's um I nearly missed out on that because I was so busy at the time and I've done a lot of work for Salador. So I can't do it. I, I did do it in the end. Mm. And um it was just the best show to 15 years. I mean, yeah. Some of the stories. Celador, of course, being the production company that made the show. Uh, so when you were working on those early shows, did you have a little instinct which said, oh, this is going to be a belter? Or were you at the back of your mind thinking, oh, this turkey ain't going to fly? No, I didn't. I'll tell you what made me think, because down at Fountain Studios, where we did the first sort of miniseries, hmm. um, we went into the, uh, the canteen, which was used as like the green room, and I sat there with... Um, Chris Tarrant and he said um, 
this has just poured in 20 million years. And I said, really? I said, that's, that's Morecambe and Wise Christmas special. You mm. and figures. And he said, I know. He said, I think this could go somewhere. And then, well, it, you know, the rest is history. It was the biggest game show ever, wasn't it? So, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, not without its hiccups, I would imagine, during the course of its 15-year run under your auspices. No, um, I think it started in 1998, if I remember. Um, and it was two years before anybody had ever won. So I think the public were getting a little bit weary. Is anybody ever going to win this? Uh -huh. It was then Judith Keppel came on. But we used to have, um, we used to have a guy, because it, the set changed over the years. And um, they always said they'd arranged it so that... Um, when anybody wins a million pounds, they'll fire the glitter cannons. So we had a guy called Pascal, Belgian guy, the loveliest guy you could ever meet. And his job was to set the glitter cannon every night. Uh, so for two years, it, it, that was his job. Of course, he'd it, never done anything because he never won the money. But when it was getting close, all the, all the crew would get round the backstage where he was with his finger on the button press the glitter cannon and we had a guy come on called Peter Lee nice chap he won he got up to half a million because all the crew were behind Pascal said Pascal come on this is it now this is your big moment this is you waited two years for this and then no never happened so then Judith Keppel comes on of course she's now going to go for the million pound question he's there, his finger was shaking and there's a there's more people crew around Pascal wait, waiting to, to press the glitter button than they were doing anything else, I think. Anyway, she answers the question. Chris goes, you've just won one million pounds. And Pat Mordecai, sadly no longer with us, she said, cue the glitter. Cue the glitter. Well, he pressed it and it didn't work. So he wasted <laughs> two years. And all we should say, cue the glitter, cue the glitter, cue the bloody glitter. Nothing. So the ending of that show, when she won it, we had to do it again. So you had to come on, you know, reset the stage again. And then she did it. Uh, she did it again, answered it again with the glitter. So, oh, my goodness me. So you restaged the, the million pound reaction question. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I never knew that. Uh, of course, then there was um, the Major Ingram thing. You know, mm, where, I was going to ask you, were you there? Were you present during the Major's um, yeah. incident? We were all there. Yeah, it was... Um, it was the longest night in history, I think, because we couldn't we couldn't believe how long it was taking to answer the, and then changing his mind. But but again, you know, it's probably doing the warm up. You, you, you can't, I used to concentrate more on what I was going to talk about in the next commercial break. So but, yes, but we, we knew there was something not right. Something, something, you know, your water it didn't feel square. Yeah, and at the end, um, when he. Uh, the show had finished, he, one of the execs come running past me, he said, there's something not right here. Mm -hmm. And then there was a bit, I think Chris has just spoke about this in his book, that um, they were in the dressing room down the corridor from me and the girl went in to give them a bottle of champagne and uh, she just gave them grief. His wife, uh, just get out of here, leave us alone. I think they'd realised they'd gone too far. You know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, must have been weird i suppose being close to that close to something so newsworthy yeah it, it was because i mean it was it made everything didn't it, it was on the news and mm. so he went to court and mm. so one of the yeah. most amazing 
incidents in, in, in quiz show history. Yes. Did, well, then the show went to the US yes. with um, Regis Philbin, I think, was the yeah. presenter, the original presenter in America of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Did you get asked to go with the show? Well, I didn't get asked to do that, but I went to New York with Ainsley Harriet. He got um, a, new quiz, uh, a new cookery programme. So I did some warm-up work on that. And then on the night, um, this exec producer, because what they did, the set um, where we recorded Millionaire, I'm sure you know this, Colin, but it was obviously at Elstree. And every other country, basically, that took the show, they came over to Elstree to do the piloting. So, you know, the, the Russians and the Italians and the Americans came over. And um, when I was doing this warm-up for Ainsley Harriet, I recognised this producer from the, uh, the American version in Elstree. And he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, nothing. He said, will you come and do our warm-up on Millionaire with Regis? So I went over there, did a couple of them, and... It was great. It, it was it, it was so easy because you know the Americans. Good evening, and they they go crazy, which is like a million T-shirts to throw out and books and all this. And but um, yeah, no, no, I, I did a few there, but that was was good fun. I bet it was enormous fun. And they are, gosh, you're quite right. A performer in America walks on and says hello, and they have a firework display. They go crackers, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they gave me all these goodies to throw out. Oh, you know, we don't do that back home. You know? <laughs> yeah, just where you're from, Philadelphia. Woo! You have a T-shirt, then they, oh Christ, you know, it just went on forever. So, <laughs> are you still in touch with Mr. Christopher Tarrant? Yeah, yeah, for my sins, he's still. Um, yeah, I talk to him every week. He's uh, he's what he is, Chris. He's obviously you know, like most of us, didn't work for a long time, but. Um, mm. His book out, yes, um, yes, but we're not here to plug Chris Terrace, but we're here no, to talk about you. Never mind him, exactly. So, so <laughs> were, you, were you mates with CT before Millionaire? Yes, yeah, a long time before that. Okay, yeah. and how did you get to know him first of all? Um, through warm up work, everybody says, Was it um, Tiz Was? No, it wasn't Tiz Was, it was uh, through warm we We working up at um, uh, Granada Street, oh, no, it was BBC Manchester. Met him on a quiz show up there mm. 30, 30 odd years ago. Okay. I want to get to when you, um, how you broke into comedy. You mentioned working at Butlins uh, in, in an, an administrative capacity rather than performance capacity. But let's dwell on going from stand up comedy in the clubs to getting your first job warming up a television studio audience. How'd you go about that? Well, I'd. Um... I quit my job at Butlins and um, I just, I'd never been on stage, never. I'd done like what they call, I suppose it would be like an open mic, they call it now, do they? Mm. Um, some yard song, told a couple of gags, but then I wanted to leave, they offered me promotion. I said, no, I just want to get this out of my system. So I went and then First couple of nights at the northeast. First night was great. Second night, I almost got locked up for talking to myself, you know. So, <laughs> and then got with an agent, and oh, things aren't working out. So I eventually went back to Butlin just for a few months, basically to earn some money. But then I went 
pro again because we had late night cabaret with Bob Monkhouse and I was watching these people think, God, that's what I wanted. So I went back again and then um, I was, a friend of mine said he, he'd done a couple of warm-ups and then I met um, an old friend of mine from Butlins, Rocky Masoner, spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. His daughter was a TV presenter now for HTV West uh, in Bristol. And she said, why don't you come down? Because they're one of the night, they're looking for um, a warm-up band. So I went down, met with these people, and they said, okay, here we'll give you uh, give you a start on Monday uh, on a series called Keynotes with uh, a guy called Alistair Deval. Mm, I remember. And that was for Grundy Television. And I did that one, which led to another one with Steve Jones down at Southampton, um, Jeopardy. Mm. And then it just went from strength to strength. And then I, I just phased out all the, all, the, all the gigs in the clubs. And, and then I didn't do any more. Sadly, didn't do any more club gigs. Well, if your diary is full with guaranteed easy money, well, easy money. Listen to me. I'm not. No, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's easy money. <laughs> when you're working up close, then you're looking at Chris Tarrant working the crowd and Sir Terry, of course, who you mentioned, and oh, and of course you you've famously warmed up today with Des and Mel for many years, yeah. and, and as you pointed out, Des was a great one for stepping into the crowd, getting amongst the crowd before showtime <laughs> and getting yeah. with them. Did, I guess. You being that close to performers, uh, you, you must pick up tricks and and and, and various yeah. style techniques by osmosis and close observation. You learn a lot from these guys. You, you do, and um, long before I went into warm-ups, because the agent I had, um, I used to work a lot um, with sixties acts. Mm. Now, they suddenly had a revolution again in the seventies and eighties. And um, so I was working with these acts and I, I used to listen to them. I did a lot with lots of clubs with like Ken Dodd. It's only working men's clubs, social clubs, Bob Monkhouse, Mike Reed. And I used to watch and take notes how they conduct themselves. And, you know, if there was a back entrance to a, a gig, always come in the back way, don't walk for, you know. And Bob used to say, never sit down in your trousers and your stage trousers because they get creased. So I, I, I would always try and learn as much as I could like that, yeah. I think. And I suppose, really, you, you, by, by observation, you learn stage craft because it's not a question of standing there behind the microphone reciting a laundry list of old jokes. There is there's a degree of move, movement and performance which emphasises each joke. Yeah, you, you do. It, it's, you know, it, it, timing's a big thing, isn't it? I, I've got... Um, I used to work a lot with a comedian. I used to work out in Germany a lot, entertaining the troops. Mm. I used to work with a comedian called Barry Sontide. But a great stand-up comic, but very aggressive. When he went on stage, people were pinned to the seats, you know, terrified. And um, I can tell you a lovely story about that, if, if that's okay, if you don't mm, mind. Do. Okay, so Barry Sontide, I used to try and watch how he worked. And Barry would always say, he, he was like a bit of a compulsive liar, but I loved him for being a liar, you know. And he would, I'd say, where have you been this week, Barry? And he said, I've been playing golf with Engelbert. I'd go, oh, Christ, you know, Engelbert. Yeah, we're mates. So it went on and on for years. Anyway, he disappeared, this comedian. And I used to watch him work, because he was a good comic. And I found out he'd gone to Florida. So 
I lost touch with him for 10, 15 years. 10, 15 years later, I went to Florida and um, I always thought it would be funny if I bumped into this Barry St. Ives, which I didn't. But when I came back, I got off the plane and drove straight to TV Centre where I was doing the warm-up for Noel's house party. Who's on the show but Engelbert Humperdinck? <laughs> now, Barry always called him by the name of Eng. He referred to him as Eng. So yeah. I thought, if I get a chance to talk to Engelbert, I'm going to ask him. Of course I didn't. But I was walking out Telecentre. Uh, it's about 11 o'clock at night. I've got my suit bag and my, my bag. Who's in front of me? Great big entourage. And Humperdinck. So I thought, I've got one chance here. So I just shouted up the corridor, excuse me, Eng. Well, they all stopped and turned around and looked at me. I said, um, I hope you don't mind. I said, but I'd just like to know, do you know a comedian called Barry St. Ives? And Humperdinck said, well, of course I do. He supports me in Vegas. I went, what? I said, all these years, I thought he was like, he said, no, no, no. He said, he's great. He's doing well. He's in Florida now. He's got a big house, pool, couple of cars. So I said to Humperdinck, could you give me his telephone number? He said, look, I don't know you from Adam, but if you ring this number, and he wrote a number, he said, call this number in Los Angeles on Monday. We'll sort you out with his number. Well, I did. I found this number, and this woman said, ah, Ray Turner here. We've been waiting for your call. I know what this is about. Put your phone down. So I put the phone down, and 10 minutes later, the phone rang, and this voice said, hey, up, Turner, you old git. How you doing? Oh. So, but he was a comic I used to look up to, and, and oh, I just no. I thought for 20 years, you, you were a liar. <laughs> so, Isn't that the, the audacity of saying, saying doing all that humbling, hey, Edge? I know afterwards I thought, how rude, you know, because I would never do that. His manager uh, was an extraordinarily lovely character called Tony Cartwright. Right. And Tony used to work out at the Mike Hughes office, and he... He's a great Liverpudlian character. And it, and it always um, amused me. Hey, listen, Eng is coming on. Eng has got a bit of a throat. Can you give him some reverb? But Eng is going to do this. I thought it was wonderful that Engelbert Humperdinck, not his real name, of course, um, <laughs> would be would be called Eng. Oh, no, Eng, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perhaps he, well, he answered to it anyway. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he <didn't laughs> hit me. So. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I used, to, I used to look up to a lot of them people trying, you know. Yeah. Today with Des and Mel, uh, about 20 minutes ago, we started that conversation where we got sidetracked. That was a live show of a lunchtime weekday and Des O'Connor, Melanie Sykes. I've got to say I worked on that show and it was damned hard work. It was relentless graft, an hour live show. Every it was for you, I remember that. Yeah. And from your point of view, not an easy gig either, because at that time of the day, as you've already pointed out, working with Sir Terry Wogan, at that time of the day, your audience really is a, a sea of grey heads and blue rinses, isn't it? <laughs> yes, he would. Um, he liked to be. Um, he was a, the ultimate professional, wasn't he? And like yes, he used to yeah. come and go back in between shows, wash his hair and this. Mm. And I, lo I loved him for that. Mm. But um, I used to bring him on. And because uh, I would have a list of where they were from, you know, what part of the, the London or anywhere, wherever they come from, supermarkets in Tesco is the crap mm. there. And he'd say, come on then, Raymond, who have we got in? So we'd make you stand next to him. And I used to think, this guy's a, he's a legend, you know, he's an absolute legend. Look at him, I'm stood next to him. And he was 
immaculate. Yes. Then even in the commercial break, we'd got three minutes of commercials. He'd come and jump in again and grab the mic. How are we doing? And so it was hard work for you. I remember that. We were were very fortunate, weren't we? Because we we were working in close proximity with an entertainer who had been a star for all of our lives. And suddenly there he is when in the company of him. It's extraordinary experience, isn't it? He did. And he would always say, I've never done a day's work in my life. And I thought I quite liked that because he was, he, he sort of meant it. I mean, he obviously has work. But, mm. uh, oh my goodness me. He, uh, his work ethic on today with Desimel was astronomical because not only in the preparation of the show beforehand, he then had to go on uh, with Melanie Sykes and, and do an hour-long show in, in front of a live studio audience, in front of a, a, a huge television audience. And I always thought, at his age, his resilience and energy was absolutely remarkable. Indefatigable was the man, I thought. He was. He, he was um, It was great, that, because, like you say, working with a top pro, um, and I think it was a great show. He, he introduced new comedy all the time. He, he was really good at that, wasn't he? Yeah. And Bolso, you being an integral part of the behind-the-scenes team, we did have some laughs, didn't we, off camera? Well, do you know what I used to do? I don't know if I've ever told you this, but we, I'd get there early. We'd do the first one live at one o'clock. We'd come off air. I'd get in my car, drive my car to Television Centre, park it at Television Centre, put my... A change of clothes in the dressing room, get the bus back or a lift or whatever, mm. back there, do the next one at five o'clock. But, but by that time, it was getting later and later. It was four o'clock, then it's five o'clock. And then when we'd finished, I'd jump on the back of a taxi bike and fly back to Television Centre to do the Parkinson show. Of course, you know, I'd literally get off the back of a bike, put another shirt on, run on set. And I remember Park, uh, Parkinson saying you look like you've been dragged through edge backwards. I said, well, fine enough. I've just come off a motorbike. <laughs> I didn't know you were doubling to that extent. No. Tripling, actually. It was, yeah. <laughs> Triple bubble, yeah. That was good. A great, great show to work on. Good fun. Mm. Let's go back to your origins now. Okay. And you were working in an office at Butlins and you saw these turns, presumably, strutting their stuff uh, at yeah. Butlins. Did you actually think, I could do that? Or did you think, oh, I'd like to have a go at that? Yeah, more, I'd like to have a go at that. I didn't, um, you know, you heard all the stories about, oh, it's not easy, you can't. I mean, it didn't put me off. Mm. But um, but I thought, I, I want to get this out of my system. Yes. But here I am, 40 years later, still trying to get it out of my system. Sure. And what do you do? Do you do you just go and you try out new stuff? I guess there are some some bankers that you've heard in your life that you can go on with. Uh, and at that time, I suppose the audience was a little more biddable uh, to, to familiar material. Did, did you work familiar material uh, and then develop your own stuff? Or did yeah. you develop your own stuff before you went on? Uh, no, a lot of it was, um, you know, what I'd heard, what I've seen and trying to change it uh, to my style a little mm-hmm. bit. But then I remember Tarlock saying once, I, I saw him on a TV show and he said, you get these young comedians come on and they're talking about the mother-in-law and things like that. And he said, um, they probably haven't got a mother-in-law, you know, he said, you don't become a good 
you don't really know about comedy until you're 30 something. And I thought, well, maybe he's right there. So I was careful of material I used. But then, you know, it was in the days of like the Black Abbots and Candlewick Green and them kind of comics and Frank Cast and Charlie Williams. I used to work with all them kind of people. So when you could actually tell a joke and didn't offend anybody. Yes, yes, absolutely. And in terms of, of, of comedy, you mentioned um, Engie's friend who works with him. <laughs> plenty of attack, plenty of attack, you know, and you, that's not your style. You're much more laid back. Uh, was that a style you developed or? I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Or are you a naturally easygoing kind of persona? Well, I couldn't work like that 100 mile an hour. And I, a lot of people have said that to me, can't you so laid back? But I don't see it myself. But what I do see, I'm not like the Barrison Times where you're attacking the audience. I, mm. I couldn't do that. You know? mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did the lockdown affect you? Well, it was tough because um, obviously no TV work. So for the f I had a lot of these Warner hotels, which I did, and they all got cancelled. So um, basically there was just nothing, no work. I mean, I'm lucky where we live, it's in the country, but um, I quite enjoyed not working. But like I said, the wages were rubbish, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, so it was tough, but tough for everybody. Oh, sure, absolutely. So when you finally then got the opportunity to go back on stage and perform in front of a crowd, strut your stuff, did you find that your joke muscles had lost their tone? Was it was it a, 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 was it tough stepping back, getting those boards under your feet again? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, when I first did. Um... One of the first ones was a warm-up, which that, that sort of came a bit natural because there's no script for me. I just go on and talk and mm. talk to characters. It was difficult, the first warm-up I did, because they're all socially distant and uh, distance and um, wearing masks, and they made me wear a mask, which was ridiculous because mm. the contestants hadn't got one on them. And that was, and, but anyway, but when I went back on to do a live gig, it was like the old Morecambe and Wise gag, not necessarily, you know, the same app, but not necessarily in the right order. And it wasn't. You, I, I come off and thought, I've just missed 20 minutes of my routine. Or, you know, it's, so, yeah. yeah, it was, it's, what about the crowd though? Were they were they a comfortable crowd to work? Because I would imagine, having been starred of live entertainment for so long, the audience was happy to be there and have a damn good laugh. Well, there were, because it was on a cruise ship, you see. So I went out to uh, the Caribbean, the owner ship. So that was, um, they're, they're there to enjoy themselves. Although, you know, they can be a bit tough at times, but it was all right. You went okay. Oh, so, so, so now you're working the cruises, which I'm guessing you didn't actually work too often beforehand. Yeah, I did. Um, I did a, a long stint on them. and I, I got basically fed up with the travelling. I just thought, I got to the point with the warm-ups. I thought, well... I'm not getting younger, like, mm. like, like all of us, but I thought it's about time I went back and did some stand-up, which I started off doing originally. Mm. And um, so I, I did some cruises. I did a lot of, but I got fed up with the travelling. You know, and people said, oh, it's a glamorous life. And it is, and you don't work that often. But the flying back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so I stopped it, then I, I carried on doing Warner Hotels, 
uh, corporate gigs and what warm-ups I was I was getting. And then it was after lockdown, I just gone back on the ships. Yes, and of course. With the cruise liners, those theatres are enormous, like 1,500 seaters, aren't they? They're massive, yeah, they really are. And I know, do you know, Simon Cowell always sort of ridicules the, the cruise act. You should be a cruise ship entertainer. But the thing is, these days, where do these acts work? Because mm-hmm. there no, there's very few clubs where everybody used to work. You can do the comedy store. But I tell you now, on, on the, a lot of these ships are getting all the alternative comics on. They're the place to work. They are because I was lucky enough during my, when I was really busy doing the warm-ups to work a lot of theatres. I did the Cambridge, Drury Lane, only on TV shows doing the warm-ups, the Palladium. But some of these theatres on these ships, they're just fantastic. They're, they're just, you know, 2,000 seaters, some of them. And they're just so, you know, I know people say, oh, cruise ship acts and all that, but where else is it to work? Oh, yes, absolutely. And there's a market for it. There's always going to be a demand for acts and turns on, on cruise ships. And as you wisely pointed out, and it hadn't occurred to me, they're there to have fun. They're there to enjoy themselves. Yeah, they are, Colin. And also, it's not just acts, no-name acts like me that work it. I... I I'll join a ship next week, and it's, it's four, four and a half thousand capacity on it, I think. Mm. And they'll have they'll have big names in there, you know. There'll be something like, you know, when I say big names, like Lulu was on last week when I was on, and um, the guest speakers, famous people, you know, lots of TV presenters. I mean, Des used to do them all the time, didn't you? Cunard. So, oh, so yes. They, they do work. Cause oh, for sure. Uh, television's changed immeasurably uh, yeah. over the years. Uh, there are a few fewer studios now uh, yeah. to work making TV shows. Um, you made, you hosted a documentary about the Wembley Studios at Fountain Studios, at Wembley mm. in Northwest London. How did you manage to land that gig? Well, do you know, out of all the studios I worked, that was my favourite place. Ah. They were the nicest, friendliest people there. Um, always got well looked after. And just about every show I worked on was, was good fun. Of course, we did the first millionaire there. Um, and then they decided that uh, it was going to be knocked down. And the, the people there who I'd known for years, the managing director, lovely, lovely people, they approached me and they said, would you um, present a documentary? And I said, well, it's not what I do, but, you know, I'll have a look at the script and, and if, if I think I could do it, I'll do it for you. So I was actually on a ship. They sent me the script. Uh, I'd seen it a few times. I got off the ship, uh, went back home, changed and drove to uh, Wembley and did it. So, it was, you know, I mean, I don't read really autocueing in the job I do. So it was a case of learning as I went along. But it came out OK. And I mean... But what surprised me was the history of that studio. It was just phenomenal. It, it, you can pick it up on YouTube now. It, it's, it's well worth a watch, I think. Oh, excellent. We will do that immediately we finish. That's going to be fascinating. Because um, those studios, the, the former London Weekend Studios, on the buses was recorded there. And ahead yeah. of that, I, I, I've got a memory of Peter Sellers working there. 
Yeah. Uh, and, it, and also, uh, the long-suffering Catherine Edmonds got the chance to uh, vision mix, in inverted commas, uh, the episode where Friends came to Britain. And they recorded that episode uh, at Wembley. And such was the scale of the, of the, of the project. Apparently, they, they took the wall down. Uh, they didn't knock it down with, with um, sledgehammers. But they removed the dividing wall between the two studios. Um, and so the history involved in that place is, well, like all television studios, I suppose, uh, royally magnificent in terms of history and, and television heritage, each television studio in this country, it royally really involved. Uh, I, I believe um, it was the history of it. I think even Hitchcock did something there. Ah, uh, you see. Yeah, it's not worth a watch, it really is. Yes, we will do that. That's YouTube. So if, if we if we go to YouTube and search for, oh, I don't know, let's call it the, the history of Wembley Studios, we'll be greeted yeah. by your beaming smile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a genial manner. Um, you're living in the Midlands still? Yeah, up in Henley and Arden. Yeah. And I, I mentioned in the introduction, your neighbours with... Mr. Jasper Carrot. Yes, he lives uh, a couple of miles away, and um, yeah, we uh, see each other regularly. He's back working again now. So. Oh, that's great. That's good. Um, I've met him a couple of times. Don't know him well. Um, nice man. Ah, oh, just one of the boys. Yeah, yeah. He's just, you know, one of the, one one of the good guys. Again, you know, we uh, see each other. Just we write some stuff together, and we sit there. We have a laugh, and uh, have a meet up lunchtime so yeah it's good yeah. and in it's lockdown that... I was going to say in lockdown we had nowhere to go so Henley in Arden is like a village but everything was obviously closed except Costa Coffee but you couldn't go in you could get a coffee so we used to get a, co uh, a coffee and sit in the bus shelter it was like it's like a scene from Last of the Summer Wine just sat in the bus shelter <laughs> <Aaron> <laughs> no, Turner yeah. <laughs> yeah no he's good he's doing well beautiful so I'm hoping with your legacy of various genres of entertainment in which you've worked with great success, great success. I hope you've got a book of memories on the go. Uh, uh oh, I don't like the sound of that. Uh. Well, everybody says it. And uh, it's one of these things. I'm terrible at saying, I'll do it tomorrow, do it tomorrow. And Eamon Holmes used to say to me, look, you can do this because when... We took Who Wants to Be a Millionaire out on the road once on a theatre tour. And it wasn't Chris that presented it. It was, um, Eamon would do it for one week, then Paul Ross, then Les Dennis. Mm. And um, me and Eamon used to get on really well. We were always, you know, he, he was the same wavelength as me. And he used mm. to say, write a bloody book, write a book. He said, oh, he said, and just, and, and he was writing a book at the time. And I liked the way he did it because his writer would come down and he just dictated. And she would type it up. Mm. And I thought, if ever I do one, so I should do, yeah. And then, then I can sell it on the ship. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, absolutely, because <laughs> you've got a captive market there. And if you're filling a 1,500-seater on a nightly basis, um, that's an awful lot of books you can sell. Yes, buy otherwise you're going overboard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next in the diary now that um, the stuff's loosened up and uh, you're back working? Well, it's all cruises at the moment. I've some warners. I've just done a, a warning gig the other night. Mm -hmm. Bottle within in North Wales. That was good. Mm -hmm. They're back up and running. No uh, 
no restrictions here. Good. Excellent news. Yeah. And it's good to know that actually, despite the many, many years you've been doing it, there are, there are still audience want, wanting to hear you strike your stuff. And there are still venues that, that want to book experienced and skillful performers. Well, I often think myself, it's amazing I get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> A good man. Uh, still not being found out, as, as Terry used to say. <laughs> and and as, as the great Mr Monkhouse used to say, keep making them have it. Ah, oh, just lovely. Yeah, he said. Um, he said. Uh, I said. I said one night on the telephone, called me from the car, and I said, "How was it?" He said, "Oh, they were so and so." So he used a stronger word than so and so. They, Bob Monk, I said, "This audience was so and so's." He said, "But I got them in the end. I made them have it." Oh, I love that expression. So Ray Turner, keep making them have it. It is a joy to know you. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation enormously. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to the magnificent Mr. Ray Turner. Thank you, Ray. Bless you, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you.